0: City officials in Cleveland are aghast they have an anti-Semitic police officer on the force and that they cannot get rid of them, but they're taking some other actions to prevent a repeat of the situation. It's the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Got some stuff to talk about. Let's get started. How is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb responding to the case of a city police officer who made anti-Semitic statements before he was hired? Layla, this has outraged many in the community because there's nothing they can do to deal with him specifically. Yeah, this
1: is the case of Officer Ishmael Quran, who unfortunately was given the Officer of the Year Award in 2019 before it came to light recently that before he became a police officer in 2018, he had made anti-Semitic posts on social media glorifying Adolf Hitler, defending a terrorist group, and spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. He he used anti-Semitic slurs in several posts and joined a Facebook group in 2017 that honored Osama bin Laden. Unfortunately, city officials determined that they couldn't discipline him because he made those statements before he was hired. And apparently that was not in violation of any existing city policy. But Mayor Justin Bibbs said the case has not only demonstrated why the police department is in need of reform, but it's really inspired some immediate policy changes. So from now on, The city will conduct behavioral-based interviews of officers. They're going to monitor officer social media. They're going to require training for implicit and explicit bias for officers, firefighters, and EMS, and mandate cultural competency training for police officers. And they're going to collaborate with the Anti-Defamation League on training for all officers for, among other things, how to investigate hate crimes and violent extremism and how to better... Uh, the city's hiring protocols. The city also said it's going to require social media checks for all new hires, which that wasn't in place until after Quran's social media posts came to light. So all good things, but the Jewish com- community has has kind of a mixed response to these new things. I mean, many groups have said they're very pleased that he's taken action to, to stamp out the anti-Semitism and the hate within the ranks of CPD. But on the other hand, you know, some have said they'd like to see this this officer at least stripped of of his officer of the year award. At least that. But you know, they they'd also like to see him not patrolling the streets. It's kind of dangerous to have someone out there who uh, has hate in his heart for a sector of the population.
0: Well, I, I, there are a couple of things. One, I, officer of the Year awards are always, it's always a dumb thing to do because how many times do oh, we come back later and say, I mean, it's just, it's a, they should stop giving those out because it always embarrasses them. Second, we're not really talking about how this guy made it through. I mean, we, You know, we had the horror of what happened to Tamir Rice because Cleveland did not do its job in vetting the officer that shot him we did after the shooting. We very quickly found out he was declared unfit to be an officer in a suburb and should never have been hired. But but Cleveland didn't do it. And, and Cleveland said then, we're going to redouble our efforts. We're going to make sure we don't hire people like this and make sure we get quality people. How does a guy with this history make it through their vetting It's for them to say, you know, from now on, we're going to check social media. How could that have not been part of the process before?
1: I don't know. And I don't quite see how the fact that he made the comment before he was hired, I I don't see how that timeline absolves him of accountability for something that he did before he was hired. I mean, I, I know someone who was in the queue to become a Cleveland police officer at one point or wanted to go to the academy. And and police officers came out to his home and interviewed his neighbors and went deep on his background to find out what kind of a person he was. I mean, it, it seemed like a pretty involved process of trying to figure <laughs> out who this person, you know what I mean? So, so they don't look, they don't at, look social at social media. media. It's I mean- the easiest, lowest hanging fruit to figure out right. what who you're dealing right. with.
0: So, do you think they Google them I mean do they at least put
1: their name right. into a
0: Google search I, you know so I, so it's good I mean I you sense their frustration D- this guy was not hired under the Justin Bibb administration or the current police chief so it's not their fault that he's there they clearly are upset that he's there they looked at every way they could to get rid of him and couldn't find a way to do it so okay we can't solve that problem let's solve the problem going forward it's the right way to handle the crisis and hopefully this will be meaningful, but you know, you're going to have to assign this guy to something where he's really not dealing with the public. What are you going to do? Put him in the evidence locker for the rest of his (laughs) career. How can you put him on the street where he may end up arresting or dealing with somebody who's Jewish? You, You can't, I mean, you just, it's not possible now. He's clearly not going to be fair with, with a whole section of the population. It's a nightmare for the city and it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing with this guy because you know what do you do i mean it's you know lots of the organizations came out and they they were glad that the, the city is trying to do something about it but they're hugely disappointed that this guy has a gun and a badge and will be investigating things in the future you're listening to today in ohio What's up with the blossom weather policy where it blocks people with pavilion tickets from entering the grounds while giving away those pavilion seats to people who have lawn tickets? How does that even begin to be fair, Laura?
2: Well, I think a lot of people would argue that it's not, and the reason this came up is because of the Harry Potter special concert that the Cleveland Orchestra did a couple of weeks ago. There were bad storms predicted for both Saturday night and Sunday, and on Saturday night, that hit right when a lot of people were arriving at 6 p.m., so they got turned away even though they had tickets, but people who were already at the venue, because you could get in as early as 4.30 They even though if they had lawn tickets, they were moved into the pavilion where the event actually did take place.
0: Yeah, I I just can you look it's 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 not easy to get to Blossom, right? It's it's in the middle of nowhere. The roads are single lane in most directions. Can you imagine driving all the way out there, getting up to the gate, and being told, "Oh yeah, you can't come in. We gave your seat away." And well, and to- I don't
2: even know if that's what they were told. It sounds like the sheriff's deputies told them it was canceled, but then they probably got all sorts of confusing information. And you know, Blossom says, "Rain or shine," and they're like, "Look, we got pavilion seats. We're fine." But they then they wouldn't let them in because of the severe weather. It just it is it, it all sorts of frustrating. And now Blossom's going to look at their policy because. I think they can see from these customers' perspective, this is this doesn't seem fair. And Harry Potter, if you're bringing your kids usually, right? Like, I mean, it could be grownups too, but a lot of kids were going to this concert. They don't do it again. I mean, they did it the Sunday night, but it's not like they have it later in the summer or they have it every week. So you, you miss the event. It doesn't happen again.
0: Well, and the whole reason people pay the extra money for the pavilion seats is partly in case of rain. And so right. they go in thinking, okay, I'm protected from the weather because I paid extra. I, I just... It, it would make me furious if I mm-hmm. if, if this happened to me. And look, this isn't the first time we're talking about their screwed up policies. What what happened earlier in the season where a whole bunch of people were late for a concert? because oh, right. Because they couldn't even the, get in. Yeah. I mean, because of the nightmare of getting in I and mean, Blossom has a serious problem and. Yeah look where you where you live how long does it take for you to get there Laura it's been an hour right 45 oh, minutes no it's not
2: it's not that bad it's probably like 35 and you say it's the middle of nowhere but where i grew up in bath like that's next door and it's great but yes, <laughs> yeah but, this is inconvenient for a lot of people yeah. and I am going to see The Sound of Music on Sunday, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Maybe you're going to see The Sound of Music. Rain.
0: <laughs> Do you have pavilion seats? Because they might no. give them away.
2: I know. No, we have lawn seats. It's not supposed to rain. Oh, well, but, with the uh,
0: lawn seats, you'll be okay, because they'll bring you into the pavilion <laughs> if it starts to rain. I just to have rain. To get
2: there early enough, It's a right? great
0: discount, right? You get it Right. Yeah, it's real, it's just, it's a hellish situation. They should solve this. It's a, it's People are not happy with it. I'm
2: actually surprised it doesn't happen more often. I guess in May, they had a Tears for Fears show when it there was a severe weather, and they delayed it for uh, 45 minutes until they were safely able to enter the ground. So they people had to sit in their cars and just say, they're like, you can't come in. You have to sit there until it's clear. Because we're talking about a wide open swath of land that, you know, that lightning could hit. That's the problem. It's not just the rain.
0: You're listening to Today in Ohio. Because some forms of green energy rely on weather trends like sunshine and wind, it is not generated continuously, meaning we need places to store the energy that's generated. What is Case Western Reserve working on to help utilities store the power generated via green energy sources, Lisa?
3: Well, in a word, they're working on electrolytes. And every time I hear that word, I think of the movie Idiocracy. (laughs) 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 Brondo, it's got electrolytes. But anyway, Case Western Reserve University got a four-year, $12 million grant from the Department of Energy to continue their research on the next generation of electrolytes. They have a center, it's called the Breakthrough Electrolytes for Energy storage center and they got 20 uh, i'm sorry 10.7 million dollars back in 2018 to get this whole thing going. So the thing with wind and solar it does require battery storage of the the power that it produces so they can reach its full potential in all conditions so you'll have power when it's not windy or not sunny. So what they're working on it's called a flow battery. So what this battery does is it passes liquid electrolytes through electrodes those electrodes collect electrons and then convert that into chemical energy that can be recovered at a later time as electricity. Now, some current electrolytes are water-based, but they have limited storage or they're chemical solvents, which are more volatile. And, you know, they're trying to find a happy medium there. So the mission at Case Western is to develop safer electrolytes that would be based on hydrogen bonding networks. It would be a lower cost a higher performance, and you know, we're, but we're going to have to wait about 10 years before we can really put this into practical application, but it's certainly something that's coming down the pike that we need. They're also working with several universities on this, uh, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Columbia, NYU, the University of Tennessee, Notre Dame, and the Pacific Northwest National Lab, and also Hunter College. So a lot of people are working on the next generation of renewable energy.
0: And to be clear, this is for the big storage. This isn't something that would help with the electric car battery. This is where you're talking about massive storage of power generated during the peak times so that you can use it when the sun isn't shining. Correct. Yeah. It's fascinating how much battery technology is evolving. If you think back, Lisa, to when we were kids, how long those cheesy Radio Shack batteries lasted when you put them into something, and now they do really go on quite a bit. And the rechargeables have remarkable life. It's cool that we're in the center of that. The green energy movement is uh, could be a very profitable one for a manufacturing state like Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I think Lisa and I are going to disagree a bit on this next story. How are tenants of a lakefront mobile home park in Cleveland responding to the sale of a park to a nonprofit agency, and what are they demanding? Layla, this was a pretty detailed story that Courtney Nostoffi published yesterday, laying out all the different aspects of this Yeah, she
1: did a great job with this. Uh, This mobile home park has been at Euclid Beach in in the North Collinwood neighborhood since the 1980s, not too long after the amusement park closed there in 1969. So many of these tenants have have really enjoyed this, this lovely lakefront community for decades. Well, the Western Reserve Land Conservancy bought the community in December from its owners, a subsidiary of Dallas-based Moore Enterprises. And the Land Conservancy bought it to keep it out of the hands of a private developer, which could have built a luxury high-rise or some other housing project. But the Land Conservancy's mission is to increase public access to nature, right? So they're eyeing it to expand the neighboring Metro Parks property onto some or all of the grounds of the mobile home park so the public can have more lakefront access. And that would, of course, mean displacing some or all of these longtime residents. So recently, these residents decided to form a union. They're calling themselves the United Residents of Euclid Beach. And they issued some demands in a letter to the Land Conservancy first and foremost they they want to stay put even though they they live in mobile homes they there really isn't much mobile about them they 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 many of these these mobile homes have been in one place so long that the wheels and the frames are just about buried and dry rotted and, and couldn't be moved without falling apart so these families would lose the homes that they own outright if they tried to take them to another mobile home park it just can't be done but if they were forced to leave their letter demands ample time to make those plans. They want three years notice and reasonable and generous payments to relocate and pay, pay higher future rents. And in response to the tenants, the land conservancy didn't make any promises other than a pledge not to relocate anybody until at least December, mm. which is right around the corner. Uh, but they're they're worried they they won't you know the the tenants are worried they won't have the time and money to plan for the relocation if they aren't given this big window. And they're arguing that the land conservancy should arrive at an equitable way to offer lake access to the public without booting them from their homes. Uh, It's just a very uncertain situation for them. And, you know, both parties, uh, you know, they just can't can't find that that middle ground yet. So um, that's how it's playing out at the moment.
0: Lisa, you have some thoughts on this.
3: Well, and there are signs up. I'm a regular at Euclid Beach, and there are signs up, you know, about the Euclid Beach neighborhood plan to take the public survey, which I did. And in the comments area, I said, leave that mobile home park alone. They are making this argument that that removing that park will increase waterfront access. There is already waterfront access all the way from the Euclid Beach Pleasure Pier all the way down to the marina unbroken there's a trail that runs right in front of that park it's well maintained it's fenced off i really don't see how removing that park and taking low-income people away from a beautiful lakefront situation is going to change things it's not going to make it any more accessible here here
0: i was trying to remember very early in my reporting career i think it was in delaware in sussex county delaware There was a similar issue with the trailer park. People were going to be thrown out because the new owner came in and all of these same problems existed. These are not really mobile homes. We call them mobile homes, but once they're in place, they start to rot. Moving them is very expensive. And unlike houses, which are renewable, these things eventually deteriorate and become trash. And in the end, in that case, it's the land rights that prevail. So, you have a nonprofit that is dedicated to lakefront access, which I know from what I hear from people in Northeast Ohio, they clamor for. They want Burke closed down. They want more and more and more access because it's our chief environmental feature and we don't get to use it. And they now own it. And they have the land ownership rights. and. When you buy a trailer, you know you don't own the land. You know the day might come where a new owner comes in and says, yeah, I want you gone. I mean, that is part of the risk of buying a mobile home. And so I, I think the nonprofit here is trying to be helpful. They're, they're saying we will work to assist you, but their goal isn't to have a mobile home park on the, on the lakefront. Their goal is to establish more parkland, more access And I don't think it's a surprise they're moving in that direction. I don't think there's any chance that that mobile home park will survive as much as Lisa wants it to. That's not what the Land Conservancy is about.
3: But to make the argument that getting rid of it increases lakefront access is a specious argument. Because there is lakefront access all along there. And then they're saying, oh, it's derelict. Well, the parts you can see from the trail and from the woods don't look derelict. It looks very well kept. So I just, you know, to say, oh, we're going to do this for the greater of the public. But to me, it looks like kicking, you know, low-income people off a nice piece of land.
0: Although they're not that low income. The story had one person say that that they would not get help because they make too well, much money. Well, so you not- know
1: that the threshold is very low that you can make pennies above poverty and then you don't get you don't get public assistance. So
0: that's not the way I read it though. I read them as saying we live on retirement incomes that don't don't sound meager. Maybe I misread the story, but We'll see. I I don't think this ends well for the mobile home tenants. Well, I think ultimately I just be It sounds
1: like the previous owner uh, did did the community a grave disservice by not keeping up the water lines. That is another problem, right? Mm-hmm. That if they right. if if they were to stay there, that that would need to be rectified. And I think that that is probably weighing into this heavily, because who who would foot the bill for that? That that really needs to be addressed um That's true. so but but i but Which, i do i mean i am largely on on lisa's side of this argument i mean especially now given what she said about how there is access to the lakefront i was not aware of of that so that 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 puts me further on that side of the argument
0: Although there are many people that don't believe we have enough access to the lakefront look <laughs> well, here's yeah, the problem let's do it they they don't <laughs> They don't. They don't really have a leg to stand on because of of land rights. I, I was surprised by the language of making demands rather than negotiating, because it, 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 you can make all the demands you want, but the owner of the land has the ability to use the land as they see fit, and that this is not an even playing field. They're they're, they're getting publicity. They're getting public opinion clearly on this podcast. Some public opinion on their side but legally they don't really have a leg to stand on and negotiation is the smarter way to get where they want to be rather than saying we demand, we demand. Just, that's not what this, this nonprofit's about. We'll keep following this. This story is not over. You are listening to today in Ohio. The interlake steamship company of Middleburg Heights has its first new freighter in more than 40 years. What are the details, Laura? The pictures we have online are really cool.
2: Yeah, Dave Peckowitz did a great job. Um, this is so cool. I am such a fan of the giant Lakers. I love how graceful these giant pieces of steel and metal and and they just look so, you know, picturesque on the horizon. But if you watch them ever in the river, you're like, how do they do this? How do they they turn down the Cuyahoga River? And this ship was created specifically to handle the curves of the Cuyahoga it's the shortest carrier in the inner lake line although it's not the smallest capacity and it was built with all these high tech things because think about how far cars have come in 40 years right like all of that is on this boat which is very cool so it's the Mark W Barker 639 foot long and 10th ship in the interlake fleet named after interlake's current president. So I guess that is one benefit. If you are the president of one of these <laughs> lake lines, you get a giant laker named after, after you. So it was made, it arrived in Cleveland this week, embarked from Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, where it was built by Fincantiri Bay shipbuilding. It's already made eight deliveries. And not only is this the first one that interlake has built in 40 years, it's the first new ship christened on the great lakes i think it's 36 years so like it's been a long time coming
0: the the uh the fact that it goes to canada brings back the iron ore for the steel plants and then turns around and takes salt back you know salt and iron ore don't really mix well so i wonder what they're doing to make sure that the iron that they bring back is not contaminated with the salt they must have to clean that thing out in a big way to uh to make that exchange
2: Yes, absolutely. What's cool about this is, you know, we've talked about um, all of the of the shortages and the slowdowns and delays. And so there's a new focus on shipping in ships as a cost- effective, economically advisable, environmentally friendly way to carry things. And so they said we wouldn't build a ship like this. We didn't believe in the future of the industry. So I mean, I, they they travel for like ten months of the year. They only get locked out between Christmas and uh, early March. So but with
0: climate change, that that may it, be gone exactly, altogether. Exactly. You never know.
2: Exactly. So the, yeah,
0: the picture that is from above, looking down into the hold. Where there is a bulldozer or something, some heavy right. equipment thing, you get a sense for how big that hold is. Because they, like they
2: look like toys. They look like talking toys. And it's, yeah.
0: wow. I mean, you're looking at it and it's like, oh, cool. And then when your eyes get onto that bulldozer, it's like,
2: wow. It's like a sandbox, like yeah. like the stuff my kids used to play with. Yeah. yeah. it's These are massive ships. I got to go down the Cuyahoga on the Dorothy and Pathfinder a couple of years ago. And it is, I mean, it's incredible. These are majestic, and I'm, it's such a cool part of Cleveland's industry.
0: Check out the photos and the story They're on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. We had a tragic case in Cleveland Heights of a hammock pulling over a pillar and killing two sisters. Now, our sister newsroom in Oregon has a similar story. Lisa, what's going on with hammocks? What happened in Oregon?
3: Yeah, it makes me not want to get, although I can't get in a hammock anyway. But the Oregonian newspaper reported that a 19 year old student died and two 18 year old women were injured on Monday on the campus of Lewis and Clark College in Portland uh, when a brick pillar holding up a hammock toppled over and fell on top of them. There were six people in three hammocks that were tied to four freestanding columns in the area, and one of those columns did collapse. Of course, this is tragically similar to the Cleveland Heights case in June of 2020 when 12-year-old Casey and 14-year-old Scout Scaravilli were killed when a brick collapsed on them when they were in their hammock. Their parents filed a lawsuit last month in Cleveland Federal Court against Eagle's Nest outfitters and other hammock makers, who, and they alleged that they knew that their product was dangerous, and they listed in that lawsuit 10 similar incidents since 2009 that led to deaths or paralysis of those involved. Eagle's Nest has denied wrongdoing, and they say that the deaths are due to negligence on the part of the customer.
0: I, it, it just seems like it's happening at a, at a pace. There should be a warning that goes out across the country. Do not attach hammocks to masonry pillars because when they topple, they kill people. It, it It's happened enough now where it's a trend. Has ha, I, I wonder if there's been any kind of recall uh, it, it, Consideration to get this to stop. I mean, th- it, when it happens once, it's a freak accident and you learn from it. But when it happens repeatedly, you really need to warn people not to do this. This is dangerous.
3: Yeah. And, you know, you'd think a brick pillar would be solid, but maybe it gets into a chink in the mortar where there's a weak spot, you know, where they tie it off. But I would think after the first couple of incidents, they would have either A, recalled it or, you know, sent out a warning. But I, from what I've seen, or what I've you know tried to find out, that hasn't happened.
0: Man, it's a scary, scary thing. It's today in Ohio. We talked yesterday about wealthy people avoiding income taxes through phony charitable contributions. Today, we have a finance officer of an Irish restaurant chain accused of scamming on sales taxes. Laura, where are the honest people? What happened here?
2: <laughs> we don't write about them, Chris. <laughs> we only write about the dishonest. So this is the chief financial officer for the company that runs Clotta Irish Pubs. They used to have restaurants at Crocker Park and Legacy Village. That was years ago. Um, so he's accused of falsifying these documents to avoid paying a million dollars in sales tax with eight Midwestern states. And what he would do is when he did the books, he would shave off a week of sales tax like every month. And this was at 15 restaurants. So that really adds up.
0: So he just lied about how much sales tax they collected.
2: Yeah, that's it sounds like and this. Is the company is CDG Acquisition LLC. They're owned by a, a millionaire from Ireland named Pack McDonough, who has Supermax, which is a large fast food chain company. Never have heard of this before, but he was charged in court, federal court, on Wednesday with two counts of wire fraud.
0: What struck his name me, is
2: Kieran Dillon.
0: What struck me about this though was you there was no implication in the charges that he profited from it. So. Yeah, I'm not sure. Was he doing it on behalf of his employer? And if that's the case, you know, should we expect some sort of civil case with the employer? Because the employer was having him do it. He was the guy doing it, they say. So he's breaking the law. But was he doing it to enrich himself, which it doesn't say, or to enrich his company? And then you would think the company would have to pay. Uh, I'll be looking for more information on this as it develops. It's kind of like the first energy case, you know, they're... The, the, the people who made the decisions, actually, it's unlike the First Energy case. The people who made the decisions there didn't get charged, and the company <laughs> has pleaded guilty to doing the bad things. In this case, it's the guy getting charged and not the company. You would think that both would be.
2: And can I, sorry, I, I misspoke. So they shaved a week off every quarter, not every month. So we're talking about four weeks of sales tax, not
0: yeah, um, a month 12. a year. That's a lot. Yeah. That's, a, that's a healthy bit of money. It's Today in Ohio. Michael Woods' mom had a premonition 19 years ago that her then four-year-old son would be running with the football. Why did that vision stay with her and the family all these years, and what has become of Michael Woods? Layla?
1: Well, Mary Kay Cabot brings us this really fascinating story about the Browns' sixth-round receiver, Michael Woods. On May 15, 2004, when he was just four years old, he was swimming with his family at a backyard pool, when he quietly slipped beneath the water and was unconscious at the bottom of the pool for several minutes until he was revived by his father and a family friend. And he told Mary Kay that he remembers clearly looking down upon the scene of himself beneath the water, sort of this classic near-death experience that people always talk about. Well, he ended up spending quite some time in the hospital after that, including 10 days in an induced coma uh, after that incident. And during that time he says he flatlined. I mean, it was a very, very serious situation. And and in those really stressful days, his mom said that she was praying over him and she had this vision of him running with a football. And this was before he had even begun playing football. Well, w- Woods rallied. He survived that ordeal, obviously. He went on to become a multi-sport athlete in high school and college. And uh, and the rest is history, right? <laughs> so,
2: yeah,
0: he's and so far he's on the Browns roster for this season, so people will get to see him. Yeah, it was a it's an interesting piece that Mary Kay picked up on and put together. She published it yesterday on Cleveland.com. I'm not sure when it'll appear in print, but uh, some insight into one of the current Browns players. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I feel bad. There was a great conversation before the podcast began between Laura and Lisa about thrifting. We're going to have to somehow bring it back because I think people would be interested in hearing it, but not today. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Friday, we'll be wrapping up the week.